Okay, now what I want to do is I want to give you six New Covenant benefits of using the Old Testament. And I, I'm pretty sure there's many more than six, but this is what came to mind. So six New, new Covenant benefits. from the Old Testament. Number one, it's God's word. So, and, and no Christian would deny that. So if it's the word of God, even if we were to determine, even if, just hear me now, even if we were to determine that all or portions of it weren't applicable, why would you not still read it? Because it would give you insight into the mind, heart, and will of God. So let's not be so practical or pragmatic that we're like, well, I'm only reading it if it has direct application to my life. Okay, well, why would you ever read the old covenant ceremonial laws if you know that they don't directly apply today. Because God wrote it. And if nothing else, it gives you insight into the mind, will, and heart of God. So let me just take this a little bit further. Sometimes when we, so uh, I think one of the greatest things that's happened in modern preaching, like in the last 50 years, is the revival of applicational preaching. I think all preaching should be driven toward with a view to apply it. So when we preach, you cannot just stand up in front of people and say, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. This is what it says. Isn't it awesome? This is what it says. Okay, we're done. You have to help people to see how to apply it. This is what it says. So here's what you need to think about. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to feel differently. You know, we, we drive towards application. So that's, that's great. I think that's really good. I hope there's applicational points in every sermon I ever preach. And they're even woven into some of the stuff we've talked about tonight. I'm hinting at some application. But the end game of preaching is not application. The end game of preaching is a high view of God. So if you can, you can point people to a text of the Bible that doesn't have an immediate take-home application point to it, but it can still benefit you if by reading and studying that text, you learn a little bit more about the heart, mind, or will of God. Because that little, even if it's just a little kernel of truth that you receive about the heart, mind, or will of God, that will, in fact, in time, germinate into worship or tie into something else you study in the Bible and lead to application. Like, why would I bother reading, like, the genealogies, are you kidding me? How do you, how do you preach genealogies? Well, why are there genealogies in the Bible? Any idea? And don't say to improve your marriage or to help you parent your kids or to help you to handle your money. It's not like that kind of application. But why are there genealogies? You tell me, why are there genealogies, chronologies of people's lives in the Old Covenant Scriptures? Anybody know? 
Okay, so there's some, there's some dating functions to it. It can help you to date the scriptures. Okay, so there's a historical element. What else? Something a little more central. It shows the human nature and what we change. Okay, yeah, good. We all lead to Christ. Mm -hmm. well, Spiritual application, we're all related. Okay, but the center of it, what's the center of it? It verifies that God's promise to Abraham actually came about in space and time, and here are the names of the people, generation after generation, that can prove that what God says is true. It verifies the seed promise. Because the seed promise was about generations under the Old Covenant. It's not like that under the New Covenant. But it's about this, your descendants will never die out. They will be as the sand of the seashores. Well, how do you know, really? What if there's like no genealogies in the Bible? We're just reading about, I don't know, Moses, and all of a sudden we're someone talking about Samson, and then we're jumping to David. Like, how do we know? Because we have these lists. We have these lists, name after name. Wow, I'm reading a lot of them. You know what? There's so many names in the Bible. You know what comes to mind? There's like as many names as there are. Let me think of an illustration. Sand on the seashore. Stars in the sky. <laughs> so what purpose does that serve? Yeah, it doesn't help your marriage. But it tells you something about God's promises. And some point down the road, maybe someone's going to be preaching on marriage. And they're kind of tying it into God as being a promise keeper. If you obey God's word, he's going to fulfill his promise. You're like, yeah, you know what, I... I think that's true because I have this sneaky notion that I've heard something about the promises of God in the past. So you see what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. If you can learn a little bit tonight about the mind, will, or heart of God, but you take nothing home with you that has an, like an immediate application to your circumstances, it's still a win. Because at some point it will. At some point it will. And even if it's only, hey, Lord, I don't worship you because you keep your promises. You're super awesome. That was worth your time reading those pages and pages and pages of genealogies and so forth begat, so and forth, so forth. Now, there's other reasons for genealogies, too. Um, the genealogies in Matthew's gospel are not there to continue to see promise. They're there to point to the uh, kingship of Christ. And in Luke's gospel, they're there to point to the humanity of Christ because the genealogies actually track one tracks his lineage. If you actually read them, they're different genealogies in the last 16 generations. So one tracks his lineage from David through, through Joseph. One tracks his lineage from um, uh, David through Mary. Because, and, and it serves the purposes of the authors. Because Luke is more interested in the humanity of Christ. The son of man, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. Matthew tends to lean more toward uh, the kingship of Christ. So he, he, he emphasizes his kingly lineage through, through Joseph. So there's just some neat stuff there. Let, let me give you another one. If you don't have an Old Testament, so let's just say, we'll use this little sign, we don't have an Old Testament. Well, guess what you don't have? You have no account of creation. Like, is there any place else in the Bible outside of Genesis 1 and 2 that gives us an actual account of creation? No. John 1 alludes to it. And 
the writers comment on it many times through the Bible. But you toss the first book, you didn't have an account of creation anymore. That's kind of like a, that'd be a little bit of a problem, not even have a record of something as fundamental as where did we come from? Think of all the questions that flow. You tell me, what are some questions that flow from our answer to the question, where did we come from? Maybe that's a little too complex. Where do we come from? Why does that matter? <coughs> okay, but that's true, so we know. But what difference does it make? What difference would it make if we didn't know? The need for God? That's pretty important. Yeah? purpose because of our identity. That whole little thing there about being made in the image of God is kind of important. Gives us hope. Hope. Where we came from, where we were, where, where we ended up. Yeah. Yeah, if we didn't have the creation account, you could question that. Maybe, maybe we Maybe there was like 10 people that were just kind of always here and they kind of decided to start populating the world and pair off, I don't know. And like there'd be all kinds of weird theories and questions to that, but we have a record of it. So there's, there's lots of things we could talk about. Um, if we didn't have an Old Testament, we wouldn't have a record of the fall. What's the fall? One of the four seasons? Hmm. What's the fall? Uh, the sins of Adam. Yeah. What chapter? Yeah. Yeah. Genesis three. Really important chapter. So we wouldn't know how. How did all this brokenness happen? Where did it come from? What? What was the first sin? Were, were we always sinners? So many questions are answered. It's possible just to read Genesis 3, oh, it's just a nice little story, or it's a, it's a story and it's true, but think about the implications of these foundational accounts. They're just titanic, just a ripple effect of implications that flow out of the record of the fall of humanity. Here's another one. Without an Old, old Testament, what are you going to do with... I'm going to write this number down. Over 900, this is the estimate, nobody knows for sure. Over 900 direct quotes or illusions or possible illusions in the New Testament to the Old Testament. How many books are in the New Testament? 27. It's about the same length as a Quran. Much shorter than the Old Testament. But in that smaller portion of our Bible, people estimate, because possible illusions can go either way, there's around 900 direct quotes or allusions or possible allusions to the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be a little challenging if you were reading any document that 900 times quoted from some other document, but you could never go back and verify the source or understand the context 
or who the characters were or what they were talking about. Oh, Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. Well, that's super helpful. Who's Melchizedek? We don't know, but he's in the order of them. Okay, well, now we don't understand that passage. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Lamb? Is he fluffy and white? <laughs> oh, we don't have an Old Testament. I don't know what that means. It means he's nice, I guess. Or cute and cuddly, maybe. Um, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. Passover? Is that like missing a plane? What, what is that? Oh, that's a layover. I don't know what that is. Who knows what it is? Just on and 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 on. And on. This is why when I uh, meet new Christians and they say, you know, oh, the, the infamous question, I want to read the Bible, where should I start? The classic answer to that is, pardon me? John. Everybody goes to John. That's fine. But I've often said, start in Genesis and then go to John. Or read John and Genesis at the same time. Or read Genesis and Matthew at the same time, or something like that. Because I know that not only is Genesis just a really interesting book to read, just from a literary perspective, but so much of what you read in John and the Gospels is grounded foundationally in that. But it belies our notion that the New Testament is sufficient by itself to lead us into truth. Because just go to John, you'll get it all down, you get the summary statement. Yeah, but you're getting summaries of things, you don't know the full story behind it. So how does, how does John start off with? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What in the world does that mean? Like, you've heard it so many times, this old hat to you. What does that mean? What does Genesis 1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So you're starting to make these connections. Okay, so what's being said about Jesus in John 1 requires some knowledge of Genesis 1. It just does. Or you're, you're just hearing words that sound kind of poetic and philosophical and interesting, but I'm not really sure what they're even saying. So our New Testament is very much the outcome or the extension of the, the Old Testament. And we just can't benefit from it to the same degree if we unhitch ourselves from it. And then doctrinally, so we'll go up here, doctrinally... The Old Testament is the backstory to almost all, if not all, Christian theology. Let me give you some words. How about atonement? You cannot understand, you cannot have a, a, a proper understanding of atonement just by using the New Testament. You have to understand the Old Testament to understand atonement. If you're sitting here thinking, I don't even know what that is, then you need to read the Old Testament. Justification. Oh, Paul made up justification. I had a guy come into my office one time and says, Paul's the greatest heretic in the history of the church. He was one of these guys that only believed that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were the Bible. And everything that Paul wrote and all that was heresy. And he was telling us we need to sell our church and sell our houses and 
know, live aesthetics a lot, as in aesthetic wood and all this, he's real winding. But um, he, he has this idea, so what about justification? Justification is the greatest heresy ever, really. Well, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And Paul uses that argument to prove that justification, so justification is a forensic act where God declares you righteous. You're righteous. You're righteous. It's a forensic act. It's not merited. Jorge, you're righteous. You're righteous. God declares it. But in that declaration, there's a response of faith. Not, oh, well, I'm going to pay you for that. No, there's a response of faith. So we see that alluded to in Abraham's reception of God's grace and believing in God's promises at the time. The content of God's promises were different for Abraham than they are for you, the substance. But he still believed in the promises of God. Whatever God revealed to him, he believed that by faith. How about holiness? Holiness is grounded in God's revelation of himself under the I'll read back to Genesis, but especially in the sacrificial system, I'm going to start just piling on. Let me pile on like 600 laws, and then you can tell me how awesome you are. It's like going to school. Okay, we're in school now. Okay, you guys all here, we're first year university. It's a biology class. Anybody here think they're awesome? You're all like, yeah, I kind of think I'm pretty good. You're all here on scholarships, right? Yeah. I heard you all graduated like A-plus from high school last year. Yeah. Okay, super. I have some assignments for you tonight. I have 600 things I want you to do, and I want you to hand them in tomorrow. None of you pass. Like, it's impossible. So you all show up tomorrow, and I say to you, now you know the truth about yourself. You're not actually awesome. So now you're going to have to rely upon me for grace if you're going to get through this class. And when God piles on those laws, and they are ominous, you should feel weary when you read Leviticus. People are like, oh, Leviticus is so, makes me fall asleep. Yeah, why? So, like, dry. Good, that's good. It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. Perfect. But if, you're, if you don't understand the Christian faith, and you're thinking, is, oh, I just go to the Bible for like a quick, like the Bible to you is like a monster drink. You know what monster drinks are? <laughs> It's like high caffeine, high stimulants. I'm tired out, I need like a quick 500 mil fix. So I chug my monster drink. Um, it'll give you that quick high. But the Old Testament, like Leviticus is kind of like drinking room temperature water. It's not super awesome. You can kind of get used to it after a while. It's not sexy but you really, really need it. Um, so if you're, if you're a little bored, I hate to use that word of God's word, but if you're a little bored reading Leviticus, I actually think Leviticus is accomplishing in your life exactly what it was designed to accomplish. <laughs> and that is to remind you, I hope you don't mind this kind of language, that you are not awesome. And God is holy, so the standard is really, really, really high. Sin, sin, you can't understand sin uh, without the Old Testament, especially original sin, that's Genesis 3. And this is why uh, so many people that are like Jesus-only readers, all they ever study is Jesus, 
they, they don't even understand Jesus' purpose for coming because they think Jesus is like their superhero or their, their savior, but they don't really know what God is saving them from. Now, part of this is because of the blindness of the human heart. I, uh, there's, there's an individual I know, I've known him for many, many years, but he, he comes to my mind a lot. He doesn't go to our church anymore, but he comes to my mind a lot because he was in our church for so long and I was shocked when I asked him to explain to me the gospel, and he had no idea. Zero. How is that possible? How is it possible to hear the gospel like 50 million times and not know it? That's not a learning disability. That's not, oh, I was born deaf, but don't have a sign language person to tell me. That's a spiritual blockage there. And so we have that. Then we have people that hear it very clearly, and they just like overtly, no, no. So some people don't deny it, they just never receive it. Other people just deny it. No, I'm not a sinner. I'm not as bad as you think I am. And so maybe you have relatives like I do that are fairly moral people, and they are so stinking hard to evangelize because they're not convinced they have a problem. They just, they don't think they have a problem because, you know, they work hard and they pay their taxes and uh, they throw money in the Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time. And they just, I'm, I'm okay. Like, what's your problem? Why are you getting on me about stuff? They don't understand sin. And then the Old Testament this is the sixth one, provides role models. And the role models are pluses and minuses. They are good role models and bad role models. Okay, let's suppose that I invite you to preach the sermon this Father's Day. And I would like you to preach a sermon, a biblical sermon, pointing people to God, but I'd like you to use as your example a godly father from the Bible. Good luck finding one. I've tried many, many times. There are like virtually no... All the awesome guys are single. <laughs> now, now that's not a slight on women but it shows how God can use single people who can be very focused on the things of God it's like well why don't we do Daniel oh yeah he was a eunuch uh, how about Paul oh yeah he wasn't married he stink well I, I suppose after he had kids you could yeah Job's pretty good Job's pretty good. Yeah. Good. You could use, good, good word, you could use Joseph as an example of a godly life, but you can't really tie it to his fathering. There's just no record of it there. But you know what? I like Job. Because Job prayed for his kids. Now the point is, is that, so let's say we have Joseph and Job on our list of potentials. There's so many more bad examples than there are good examples of fathering. And now when you, when you look at women in the Bible, of course, there's fewer women in the Bible. 
but you have you have some, and one of the things that um, we sometimes think is in the Bible, we can only learn from the good examples. But in fact, we can also learn from the bad examples. So we can learn from Peter about his denial of Jesus Christ. And we can learn something there because good examples are often, we often interpret good examples as people that we can never really measure up to. How can I ever be like Daniel? Okay. Well, yeah, there's, there's some bright lights in the scriptures, but think of how many people are terrible examples. And they're, they're a lot more like me than they are like Jesus. So we have examples. I would say this, though. I would say that when you... I would say that when you preach from the examples of the scripture, that the end goal of preaching moral examples is not so that people might go away and say, hey, I need to be more like Ruth. Or I need to be more like Job. Who do I need to be more like? The God of Ruth, the God of Job, the God of Paul, the God of need to be more like them. So that's the difference between like a horizontal sermon and a vertical sermon. Or we used to say an anthropocentric sermon, a man-centered sermon, and a theocentered sermon, a God-centered sermon. That's the difference. But nevertheless, the Old Testament provides us with examples, role models of, of, of uh, goodness and failure. All right. So um, now I want to talk to you about the impact of the Old Testament on New Testament interpretation. So the impact of the Old Testament on New Testament interpretation. And we have how much time left? Half an hour. All right. So really quickly, in the Old Testament, there are various signs and symbols that are repeated in the New Testament. And not to say that you can't have some benefit from just reading the New Testament in terms of these signs and symbols, but the Old Testament signs and symbols, if you look at them as a background, can be super helpful. So for example, do you remember in Acts 2 where the Spirit of God came down and descended upon people like flames of fire? Remember that? So let's just use the flame. This is a, a sign. It's a, a sign. I guess you could call it a symbol, too, of God's presence. Now, sometimes flames are used in a negative way, where God is um, talked about as a consuming fire. Right? So it's like a negative... It's like God's wrath being poured out. But in Acts 2, it's not a negative. It's like a positive. It refers to God's presence, his power in the life of these believers. Can you think of anywhere else in the Old Testament where God's presence manifested itself in fire? Okay, right on. The burning bush. And 
In the Exodus. In, in the wilderness, the pillar of fire, right, which guided them by night, pillar of cloud by day. So the, the point is, is that just using that as one example, this flame under the new covenant has an analogy, um, an equivalent <laughs> under the old covenant. Um, symbols. How about blood? Uh, blood under the old covenant is symbolic of the lifeblood being shed, and that is reinterpreted under the new covenant in what? Communion. The communion wine, or communion, the fruit of the vine. How about water? Um, in baptism, we're immersed, so we, we focus on the symbolism of the immersion, but what else? Why did God pick water? Like, why are we not immersed in grape juice or soft sand or those balls that used to be in those jumpy rooms? Oh, dear. But all the kids pooped in them, so they outlawed them. Right? Um, why water? So what would be a, like an Old Testament example of water symbolizing cleanliness or purification? Sorry? Okay, the flood cleaning, yeah, the flood cleaning the world of sin. How about the, the laver and the tabernacle? So water symbolizes purity. Sacrifice, this is an easy one. So Christ, the sacrificial lamb, we already alluded to that, is referred to under the old covenant, um, you know, the old covenant sacrificial systems. Even in uh, Mark chapter 6, we have oil. So Mark chapter 6, I wanted to read this one, verse 13. There's nothing like magical about oil, except if you like essential oils. <laughs> Apparently those heal and fix everything. <laughs> no offense to those of you that are into essential oils, but apparently if you can get the right essential oils, you can get healed from cancer, and uh, you can like regrow limbs if you get the right fragrance. Yeah, castor oil. <laughs> Susie's at the back. Her mom used to feed her something called wonder oil. And wonder oil says it's for topical use only on the bottle, but they would drink it all the time. Oh, so Apparently it helped, but <laughs> who cares about the directions? Um, okay, so this is a healing narrative. So Mark 6, 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, there, there, are two, there are two interpretations of anointing with oil. I don't know. I go back and forth on these. I can't decide what I believe. Um, so I think we have to have some like interpretive humility here. So some people think that the anointing oil was, was medi uh, medicinal oil. So the idea would be here and in James 5, where they anointed the sick with oil. They prayed for them and gave them their medicine. Um, or that the oil was oil that symbolized God's power. So it wasn't innately miraculous, but it symbolized God's power. So uh, this might sound kind of weird to you, but I, I just, I wish I had clarity on this, but I don't. And that's why I, I don't anoint people with oil when they're sick. Because I just don't know if that's what James 5 is teaching. 
many of our elders feel that it is, and so I've been in many, uh, a few situations they've anointed the sick with oil, but I don't do it. Not because I have a problem with it, but because I'm just not sure that that's what the text is teaching. So I'm not just going to be like a talking head or the dispenser of oil. I'm just not sure on that. I don't know if that text is saying, um, call the elders to pray for the person and literally pour oil on them as a symbol of God's presence, or if the text is saying, pray for the person and give them their medicine. So I do the first, but I just don't do the second because I'm not clear on that. And so I hope you can appreciate that. That's one of the few things I'm not clear on. And I wish I was, because I've been doing this for a long time, but I just don't have clarity on that. It bugs me. But I need to be true to where I'm at. So what we do know is that oil is symbolic of anointings or God's, the dispensement of God's power presence. So we have uh, Samuel anoints David or Saul first, and then he anoints David as king, right? There's, there's something symbolic about that. Um, Okay, so those are a few. Now, I want to talk about the way the Old Testament is used in the New Testament, which I think is fascinating. But before we do that, let me just share with you five factors that I think were at play in the New Testament world when the New Testament writers were using the Old Testament to build their case. Here's the first one. What's interesting, if you flip through your Bible, you can just like do that as we're talking, and you'll notice that there's several quotes that just appear like in the middle of a gospel where Jesus is quoting from whatever, Isaiah or something like that. And then you get into like Rome, it's the same thing. Act. There's just time and time again over 900 quotes or allusions or potential allusions. And if you take a little bit of time to ask, what were they actually quoting from? Like, what were they actually quoting? quoting from. What you'll discover is most of the time they're quoting from translations, which is pretty interesting. Most of the time, the quotes that we say are Old Testament in the New Testament are from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew. So the Septuagint is a comprehensive translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek a few hundred years before Jesus by the Jews that were living in Egypt who were, who were Hellenized and therefore were speaking Greek. I think that's interesting. The LXX is a very, very good translation of the Hebrew. But on one hand, it might call into question, well, why wouldn't they go back to the, the original, 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 original to make sure like every nuance of every word was bang on? Well, sometimes that happens if the nuance is important. But Jesus and the apostles felt comfortable just also quoting from like a really good translation. And I think that's super awesome because it tells us that there's, there can be some confidence when we're preaching and teaching the Bible from a solid translation. Yeah, it might not be as accurate in terms of some grammatical nuance as the Hebrew or Greek, but it sounds terrible. It's close enough to be used of by God to get across his message to the people of God. Um, so while, you know, we spend a lot of time in seminary learning languages and doing what we call textual criticism to determine, you know, which 
verse from various manuscripts is the most accurate, there's a place for that, and we need to do that, because sometimes a doctrine can revolve around a tense of a verb. While that's important, in the day-to-day -day rhythms of life, normally a good translation is more than enough for most people. And you don't all need to know Greek and Hebrew to be a great Christian man or woman of God. Secondly, the Jews practiced something called Midrash. And Midrash were essentially commentaries in the Old Testament by Jews. So they were kind of like their, their expositional statements, a style of expositing the Old Testament. And this was adopted by the New Testament writers because it would have been known to the readership. So let me just say it a different way. Picture Peter, and he's living in the first century, and you're the church he's overseeing, or you're the audience standing in the synagogue, and he's preaching to you. He's going to preach the truth, but he's going to adapt and adopt the forms of communication that were known to his audience at the time to maximize his effectiveness. The writer of Hebrews does the same thing. So instead of Midrash, which was an Old Testament style of common, so picture the Jews, you know those Pharisees and all those guys, the rabbis, they're out in public interpreting God's word using a commentary style of interpretation called Midrash. And there's a couple others as well, but we'll just use Midrash as an example. What we see reflected in the way Paul or Peter or John used the Old Testament stylistically is a lot like Midrash at times. Or um, one of the, the main branches of education in the first century was rhetoric. So it, this is so interesting because in our culture, we're like the, the base subjects are mathematics and English and languages, English, French, so languages and um, sciences, right? And there's different branches of sciences. And then we have the arts. And then a few other things, you know, uh, physical education and music and all that kind of falls under some of those. We got these standard curriculum of subjects. But if you go back like 2,000 years, you're like, okay, I'm at school. Where's the math class? We don't have one of those. What? Where's science class? We don't, we don't have science class. Well, what are we studying? Well, we're studying rhetoric. Rhetoric? What, I don't know what that word is. Rhetoric is basically the art of argumentation. And they had all kinds of forms that they would teach you. Like you could do your whole education in rhetoric of how to build a case for whatever it is you wanted to build a case for. And then, of course, there were other things like history and philosophy in there, too. But rhetoric was like key to this. It was like a core. You could do, your, again, your whole education in that. So if you read Hebrews, for example, let's say you took some time, you did a university degree, and you wanted to study like first century rhetoric. You became like an expert on first century rhetoric. And then you grab a Bible for the first time and you're flipping through it. You got to like Hebrews. Here's the first conclusion you would draw. Whoever wrote Hebrews was an absolute expert at first century rhetoric. The way they build their case, the way they quote from the Old Testament, the way they use those quotes is totally symptomatic of a style that exists in the first century a style of first century rhetoric. So the forms of the New Testament, the way the Old Testament is used in the New Testament very much reflects 
the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the style, the rhetorical devices of the day. Let me give you like one example of this. So go to Hebrews 1.5. One of, the, one of the disadvantages of this is if you've actually read the Bible a lot, you start to not see it anymore. It just seems like totally normal to you. But if you, if you pause and think about what's actually being said from our vantage point, because our forms of argumentation are very different, it actually comes across really weird. So in Hebrews 1.5, he's building an argument for the supremacy of Jesus, and he says... Uh, I, I'm probably going to have to step back here just so you kind of get the point. After making purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So this is speaking of Jesus, right? Being higher than the angels. Then he quotes, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 2, 7. So go to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, 7, it says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You have the advantage of reading that with New Testament eyes. In fact, the English translator here actually capitalized son. Because it assumes that Christians are going to read this and they're going to interpret this messianically. Oh, this is referring to Jesus. Okay, well, I can guarantee you one thing. When this was written, they weren't thinking about Jesus. Who are they thinking about? The Davidic king. David, the king. And this is then a, a declaration in the psalm that God had placed his hand of approval on David. That's what Psalm 2 means by itself. If we never had a New Testament, that's what it means. That's all that it means. But the writer of Hebrews is trying to build a case that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and God's hand of approval is on him. So he goes back, and we would say from our, because our rhetoric is different, we would say, oh, he pulls a verse out of context. And he uses it inappropriately for his purposes. And this is why critics of the Bible, they actually were smart. They would read through all this, and they would trash the whole, body, whole New Testament from end to end. They would say the whole almost all of a New Testament from our vantage points are misquotes and misappropriations of the original text. <clears throat> but then you would have to respond and say, that's because you're reading it through Western eyes. And we've accepted. So I wrote like tons and tons of research papers in school. I'm sure many of you have written research papers. And you know, without even thinking about it, that there's an appropriate and inappropriate way to use a quote. You have to use a quote in a direct parallel kind of way. The circumstances have to line up. The context has to be the same, on and on and on and on. We think that's just the way it is. That's true. That's true. That's the only way to do it. And we're graded on it. And we fail if we don't do that. But that's a modern understanding of how quotations can be used. Because they were taught to use quotations this way in Greek rhetoric. And because the first century readers thought that way, that's how they received this kind of argumentation. I'm going to come back to that. Typology 
is a, third re a fourth reality. Typology is where patterns in history could be applied to current or future events. So an example of this would be that Jesus Christ is um, referred to as like the tabernacle or the temple of God. And that's from the Old Testament. The Old Testament have, has the tabernacle, and then there's a couple temples. The first one gets busted up, the second one's built. And these, ta this, these physical buildings become types of Christ. Why? How is, how is a tabernacle a type of Christ? Okay, God with us. Perfect. It's where God's presence is felt. Doesn't mean Jesus is actually a building. Remember earlier we talked about fulfillment? Mm -hmm. Write this down. In, in our way of thinking, fulfillment often sounds like, oh, that's a prophetic event that came to pass in the moment. So Isaiah prophesied that in this year, I don't know, this person would do this. That's our thinking of fulfillment. That's a very narrow definition of fulfillment. Fulfillment can, can simply mean the fulfillment of a pattern, the final, the final installment of a series of patterns. So if we were to say Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, it would be kind of weird. What do we mean by that? We would mean there, there was a God walking in the garden, with Adam and Eve, there was fellowship that was broken by sin, but then God manifested himself in a tabernacle, and then eventually in Solomon's temple, and then eventually in Herod's temple, and then there's Jesus. So it's not that Jesus is the fulfillment in that, how do we even put that? The tabernacle was God with us, but there's a pattern of God manifesting his presence to us in space and time. And Jesus is the, the last one on that continuum. And we would use the word fulfillment. It's the end of a pattern. Or that he's the final type of a pattern. There's no other one that you can look to that's going to be like him. So fulfillment is a different kind of word oftentimes in the scriptures than we think. We think it's a one-for-one, one, but it could be the continuation of a series of events. Hmm. So if... Um, okay, so this is the debate. So uh, Isaiah's wife... So Isaiah marries a young girl. And there's a son born of that union. Remember his name? Maharshalal Hashbaz. And so the English translation says, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, right? And we're like, oh, that's, that's a clear, that's a prophetic announcement of Jesus. And then someone's like, ah, yeah, but it says there's Maharshalal Hashbaz. Oh, I never knew that. So maybe Jesus isn't the fulfillment of that prophecy. And was Isaiah's wife a virgin in order to have that? I thought Jesus was the only virgin born. No. The word for virgin there can mean a young woman or a virgin. It can mean either or. It can mean a young married woman or it can mean a virgin woman. So, whoa, are we playing, playing fast and loose in the text? Are we trying to read 
the virgin birth back into Isaiah seven centuries earlier to prove that the prophet prophesied that Jesus would be born. And, and this is where people's faith starts to get rocked, right? Because it's like, I, I'm reading Isaiah now and I'm realizing that in that context, Isaiah is not talking about Jesus' virgin birth. He's talking about the woman he marries, who he will have sex with, who will have a son, who will be a son of promise and so forth and so on. Oh no, he will be God with us. But we, like to, we don't like to talk about that because it's just super convenient to say, oh, it's a, it's a prophecy of Jesus, meaning that seven centuries before Jesus, what Isaiah was thinking of is that one day a Messiah would come and he'd literally be born of a woman that never had sex with a man and he would be the son of God, and on and on and on. And we're reading all this New Testament theology into it. And it's just not appropriate. So what, what is it that Isaiah is referring to there? He's referring to both and. Whether he knew it or not, his prophecy was fulfilled in the birth of his son. And it was fulfilled in Jesus. But when we say fulfilled in Jesus, we mean Jesus was the end of a pattern. Maharshal al-Hashbaz and Jesus are in a pattern that are like one another. Now, you may not like this because you may prefer to argue with your atheistic friends that biblical prophecy and fulfillment is all about God says on this day, this time, this hour, this will happen. It's only going to happen once, and then it happened 700 years ago, and it proves the Bible's true. Well, argue the way all you want, but when you bump into a smart atheist, he's going to call you out on it. Mm -hmm. So you have to have a proper view of fulfillment. And fulfillment is not just this guy says it's going to happen then. He might say it happens here, 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 here. It might happen 10 times before the ultimate and final fulfillment, before the last person in the pattern of God coming among us through a virgin happens. Catch my drift? Okay. And then finally, apologetics. Because the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the Old Testament or the New Testament writers used the Messiah to show them uh, who Jesus was. We're almost out of time. I really thought we'd have more time for this, but I want to give you 11 points, so just write these down. Maybe not 11, but I'll give you several. I might skip a few. So here are different ways. I'm going to give you some passages. You can study these on your own. Here are different ways that New Testament writers can use quotes or allusions from the Old Testament. So number one is, the New Testament writer may wish to point to an accomplishment of something in the Old Testament in the New Testament. So Romans 9, 33, and you're going to go back and cross-reference that to Isaiah 28, 16. Romans 9, 33, Isaiah 28, 16. You're going to see an example of that there. Secondly, they, they may wish to confirm that some incident in the New Testament, so an actual event, is in agreement with an Old Testament principle. A principle. So uh, Hebrews 4, 5, and 7 would be an example of this. Uh, that's the one where God says, you shall not enter my rest, therefore it remains for some to enter it. So it's a whole, like, you're not going to get into heaven unless enter my rest. But he, he, he's quoting from the Old Testament where the Jews were trying to enter the land of Canaan, their rest. So it's an Old Testament, a New Testament incident entering into heaven, being cut off or being welcomed into heaven is kind of like equal to or there's some similarity to 
entering into the promised land. But it's not fulfillment like it's the same event. It's a different event. You might say he's pulling it out of context. He's saying, do you think that the guys, do you think that the Jews standing in the plains of Moab ready to enter the promised land were thinking about entering heaven? No, they were thinking about entering the promised land. So why is the writer of Hebrews misusing the event to build some case for something else? Because they don't use quotes like we do. They use them differently. They're allowed to in their rhetorical structures. Or they may desire to illustrate an Old Testament truth. So in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11 to 12, and says, um, My son, do not disregard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is... on the tail end of a discussion about Jesus being subject to the hostility of God on the cross to die for our sins. And then a call for us to endure suffering to the point of death. That's the context. So think about that. He's, he's arguing that Jesus endured on the cross the wrath of God we should endure suffering in the Christian life. And to prove the point, he quotes from a proverbial truth about a father disciplining a son that he loves. It's not the same thing. It's a different context. But in ancient rhetoric, you could illustrate a New Testament teaching using an Old Testament text. That was appropriate. That was considered appropriate. Another one would be, you may wish to draw a parallel between an Old Covenant and a New Covenant figure. So I already gave you this one, Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews 5 and 6, and it says um, Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. How? Well, two things. His name means uh, king of righteousness. That's the literal meaning of Melchi, king, Zedek, righteousness. This is really odd. The king of righteousness, the original Melchizedek, has no father or mother named in the genealogy. He just appears in the text, and then he disappears from the text. Now, from Western view, it's like, who cares? How many of you know what my mother and father's first names are? My wife. Maybe Jack. So you never ask because you don't care. But that's a Western thing. I don't know who your parents are because we don't care about that. We're very individualistic. But in ancient times, if you couldn't, if you couldn't um, share your genealogy, it's like you didn't exist. I was, I was debating Muslims many years ago, and I'll never forget. I was so confused. Oh, what was it now? They said, um, I think they said they accepted in theory, not in practice, but in theory the Gospels because the genealogies of the writers are there, but they wouldn't accept any New Testament book where the genealogy of the writer wasn't laid out. I'm like, why would you care? Because that person didn't exist then. That's not true. I'm like, what? I had to like really ask a lot of questions to get into their headspace and their worldview. But some cultures are so connected to it. There's, there's such a sense of corporate solidarity. You are your parents present, and they are their parents present. 
and they are their parents present that if you can't show your genealogy it's like you're not even real it's so weird it's hard for me to even explain it to you because it's so weird to the western way of thinking so the fact that this guy Melchizedek shows up out of nowhere and his parents aren't mentioned he's like the mystery man of the bible but that individual is used as a type of Christ in uh, Hebrews 5, 6 to build the case. Another example of that would be Acts 2, 34 to 35, and you can cross-reference that to Psalm 110.1. Two more. Uh, they may use an Old Testament story to illustrate a New Testament truth. So in Deuteronomy 29.4, there's a... There's a conversation about God's selection of the Jewish people to the exclusion of others. And then in Romans 11, 8, Paul uses that to build a case for election, that God selects some to the exclusion of others by his grace. So they draw from an event in the Old Testament to build a case for a theological principle in the New Testament. And finally, they may just simply be employing Christ-centered typology or Christological typology in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. Um, there's a quote here, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So this would be a, in the Old Testament, a, um, a statement about humanity's relationship to angels, but the New Testament writer is using it as a statement of Christ's supremacy over the angels and the fact that everything has been put in subjection to him through his work on the cross. So that would be Christological ty uh, typology. Okay? Now, here's a, let me just encourage you by saying this. Even if you don't remember all this stuff, it doesn't matter. You're you can start reading these and start to like just think and explore what is the context here, what is the context there, what is the difference between the two. And when you get into the New Testament and you start to encounter passages that seem to disclaim the, New, the, the Old Testament, so all the passages about us not being under the law, we're not under the law, we're under grace, we're not under the law, here's what you need to know. What that doesn't mean is, uh, and you can look at Romans 6.15, Grace doesn't mean that we are not obliged to live moral lives. And grace doesn't mean that we have absolute freedom regardless of its effect on others. So you can study Romans 6.15 and 1 Corinthians 9.20. And that will be like crystal clear to you. But what it does mean to say we're not under the law, it doesn't mean throw out your Old Testament. Okay, what it does mean, I'll give you Galatians 3.10, we do not rely on works of the law, because if we do, our failures will condemn us. So back to my illustration of, oh, you think you're A students? Let me give you like 600 things to do and see how you measure up. Galatians 5.18, we are led to works by the Spirit. We're not led to works by the law. So under the New Covenant, it's the Spirit pushes us. The Spirit wants us to demonstrate good works. Whereas in the Old Covenant, in the absence of the Spirit's indwelling, it's just the law, the law, the law that's like beating you over the head as to what you need to do. 1 Timothy 1.9, the law will condemn all who try to live by it apart from grace. Okay, So the law will condemn 
good deeds, we'll just say good deeds, we use New Testament language, the new good deeds you try to do will condemn you because if you set all this list of things you want to do with your life, when you fail, you'll feel shamed and condemned by it. But if you live by the Spirit, the Spirit will never empower you to do more than He wants you to do, and He will never call you to do anything that He will not empower you to do. So that's what, what it means to live by the Spirit. And then Romans 3.20, law doesn't justify, but law does bring knowledge of sin. That doesn't mean that we avoid the law. So why would you avoid the law if the law brings knowledge of sin? So you should try to pursue good deeds. In the process, as the Spirit empowers you, you're going to be successful. When you fail because you're not yet fully redeemed, it's supposed to throw you back on grace. It's not supposed to make you push further into the law. So this is the, dy the dynamic of the Christian faith. We do believe in good deeds. We do believe in works. We do believe in a certain kind of law, New Testament law, the Ten Commandments we've talked about today are reiterated. But we're led by the Spirit, and we're relying upon grace to live in the way that God wants us to live. We're not dismissive of the law, and we're not just following the law in order to make ourselves better. This is the flaw of the new Christian. It's like, I've, my life has been so terrible. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a liar. I'm a cheat. And they just pour themselves into doing, 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 because they're like trying to counterbalance the stuff they used to do. And after a while, they hit a wall. They realize, I can't do this very well. And they become all shamed, disappointed, and bummed out. They need to learn to live by the Spirit. And when they fail, that's a reminder of grace. And when they succeed, that's a reminder of grace. And both those things are awesome. So we push forward in the Christian faith. We persevere so that whether we fail or succeed, we, in both of those events, we receive reminders of God's grace in our lives. And that leads us into worship and work and walking with Christ. All right? So thanks for coming. I um, hope this course has been somewhat helpful for you. And uh, just a little you know, primer, obviously. There's more we can talk about. But help, hopefully it will help you to understand a little bit more about the New Testament. Thank you for investing your time. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you hopefully again.